Hey everyone, this is Walking Through Fire and I'm your host, Brian Hoops. I'm recording this around Christmas time and I thought what better way to get into the holiday spirit than discuss a country whose current leader had his uncle publicly executed by an anti-aircraft gun on national television. If you haven't guessed, we're talking about North Korea, but more specifically, an American that lived the bulk of his life as a citizen in North Korea. His name was James Joseph Dresnok. Dresnok was an American soldier stationed on the border of South Korea when he abandoned his army post and defected to North Korea and then spent the remainder of his life in North Korea until his death in 2016. Dresnok abandoned his post in 1962, but to really understand the early life of James Dresnok, his life in the army, as well as everything that led up to his defection, as well as his life while living under North Korea. We have to do a quick overview about how the Korean Peninsula itself came to be, because this will kind of set the stage for why someone would want to defect to a country like this at the time that he did. I'm not going to go over Korea from all the way in its ancient history, but we're going to pick up pretty much at the turn of the century, around the 1900s. Korea itself became a protectorate of the Japanese Empire around 1905 after the Russo-Japanese War. Japan removed the emperor that was uh, ruling over Korea at the time around 1910. From what I read, it seemed like Japan created an almost quote-unquote sharecrop type style of uh, land ownership in Korea that was somewhat similar to uh, post-slavery uh, United States. Korea historically didn't really keep solid records on land ownership, and it was just kind of handed down generation by generation, and no one really thought at the time to make a formal system of land declaration. So when Japan took over Korea, they assigned a governor, a Japanese governor, to look over the entire, I guess at this time, the protectorate of Korea. His name was Terauchi Masataka. He imposed a rule stating that Korean farmers needed to formally prove the land that they had been farming on was actually theirs by showing deeds or other legal documents that could prove that the Koreans actually owned the farm. Or the other option was that the Korean farmers could essentially buy back the land from the Japanese government. Only the wealthiest Korean farmers could actually produce this type of documentation and this caused for outside Japanese corporations to come in and resettle the farms of the poor Koreans. So the Japanese set up a sharecrop type system where Korean farmers could work the land and live on it. But similar to sharecropping in the U.S. post-slavery, the Korean farmers would have to give a percent of their total crop yield or profit to the landowning Japanese. Needless to say, the already poor Korean farmers became poorer and had to send their children to work in factories or have their wives and daughters dabble in prostitution. Later, during World War II, these women were referred to as comfort women and they were coerced into military brothels for the Imperial Japanese Army. From what I could find, the Koreans were treated as second-class citizens in their own country. The Korean language itself was not allowed to be spoken in schools, and much of Korea's official historical documents were burned. In 1939, Japan made it policy that Koreans had to take on Japanese names and barred Korean men from joining the military until 1944, when Korean men were drafted into the slowly dying Imperial Japanese military. 
Post-World War II is when Korea is officially divided into two sides along the 38th parallel. Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is under the advisement of American diplomat Dean Rusk and Army officer Charles Bonesteel, which is the most old-timey sounding last name I've ever heard right next to Buzz or Skip. The Soviet Union occupied Yongyang in North Korea and appointed Kim Il-sung as the chairman of North Korea. Soviet forces withdrew from the North by 1948 and the majority of American forces left the South by 1949, but there was still a contingent force that remained. By 1950, tensions had risen between North and South and the Korean War breaks out. The Korean War ended in stalemate in 1953 and to this day, there is no formal peace agreement that has been signed between North and South Korea as well as the United States, the main belligerents of the conflict. So North and South Korea remain split at the 38th parallel. I glossed over a lot of that and will at some point do more in-depth episodes about the Korean War and some of the battles, including the Chosen Reservoir, but I wanted to get the stage set so that now we can get into the life of James Joseph Dresnok, the longest living American defector in North Korea. James Joseph Dresnok was born November 24, 1941, in Richmond, Virginia. It's not clear what his father did for a living, and his mother was described as an atypical housewife at the time. But she was wanting a more free life. Dresnok described his mom as a barfly, and Dresnok's brother was sent to their grandparents, and James was sent to his aunts, who wanted nothing to do with him. So Dresnok ran away and ran back to his father, hoping that he would take him in. At the time, Dresnok's father had remarried, and when Dresnok showed up to his father's house, his new wife was pissed off because she did not know that the senior had more than one child. From what I could find, Dresnok's father dropped him off at essentially a retirement village that would take care of kids for the short term. During this time, Dresnok stole a bike to run away from home, but was arrested. After his arrest, he was put in a boy's home that was run by a Presbyterian minister that was nicknamed Big Papa, and he sounds like a wrestler from the Attitude Era of the WWF in the 1990s. Dresnok describes Big Papa as being stern but fair, and even though Dresnok showed up with only the clothes on his back, Big Papa gave him a home and purpose. On his 17th birthday, Dresnok enlisted in the U.S. Army. After he left boot camp, the first girl he met at church he married. I believe her name was Kathleen Ringwood. They never had children, and shortly after their marriage, Dresnok was sent to West Germany for a two-year stint. From what I could find, and based on interviews of his fellow soldiers, Dresnok was just your fairly average soldier. He didn't really rise above expectations, but he did enough just to get by. During his time in West Germany, Dresnok, and I couldn't find the exact details of his situation, but he fucked up somewhere. The circumstances, as I mentioned, are unclear, but his punishment was to clean a armored an armored vehicle with a toothbrush. Dresnok said that he had debated defecting to East Germany at the time, but it happened fairly often with American soldiers 
during this period that the East Germans just simply questioned the American soldiers for a little bit and then just sent them back over the line. Well, I say soldiers were, like, leaving their posts and going over to East Germany at the time. I, I kind of need to elaborate a little bit on this. I'm not insinuating that American soldiers at the time were in hordes, like, abandoning their posts and buying into the entire idea of communism. What what was what I think the best way to describe this is like remember when you were a kid and like your parents made you do something and you were like I'm not doing this shit I'm running away and then you'd like run down to the corner and then like the reality of the situation hit you where you were like oh I'm out in the real world that's almost a, like the most similar um like explanation of what was going on at this time Soldiers would get punished. And mind you, at this time period in the U.S. Army and the U.S. military in general, it wasn't uncommon for, like, 16-year-olds to enlist in the military. So these are, like, very, very young guys. They get, you know, punished for doing something stupid. And they're like, oh, well, fuck this. I'm just going to go ahead and uh, defect to this other country. But then once they realize they get into another, you know, into East Germany's, um, you know, perimeter... That's when they realize, like, oh, shit, I fucked up. And that that's kind of just to give you an idea is, like, what was really going on. It wasn't that people were like, oh, well, I'm a communist now. And, I'm, and, like, they just broke ranks. They just did it as, like, a small passive-aggressive act. During his time in Germany, Dresnok remained loyal to his wife. He did not chase women. He didn't go to bars. And for the most part, just kind of just hung around the barracks. When he turned to the United States after his two years in Germany, Dresnok's wife had left him for another man, and Dresnok did not at all attempt to save their marriage. Dresnok was heartbroken, and like a lot of other guys who were, are in their like late teens, early 20s, not really sure what they want to do with their life, he stayed in the army, and this is when he was sent over to South Korea for border detail. So in May 1962, Dresnok is transferred to South Korea, for border detail. One thing you kind of have to keep in mind, because I've had friends who have recently served in Korea uh, with the U.S. Army, and they kind of describe it nowadays as just, like, boredom. Uh, they do a lot of training exercises with the Korean Army. Um, but for the most part, sitting on the border itself is just, like, it's this boring, boring guard duty detail where they just sit there, look at each other, and occasionally just exchange bad glares with North Koreans. Border duty back in the 1960s, like, keep in mind, the Korean War has not even been over for a full decade yet. It was still a very hostile uh, area uh, to be in the military at. There were still active firefights, small arms exchanges, but it never really got above, like, Guys shooting it out with like small arms and like uh, like hand grenades. Uh, I think the biggest capacity round they used was like sixty millimeter mortars. But still, that's pretty fucking dangerous for like um, you know just to be doing like guard duty. Like they would do patrols and they'd get in shootouts with the North Koreans. But like that, I mean, that's pretty intense for the time. Uh, and this is also pre-Vietnam War. Um, so I mean, like. You know, the, the, this is just kind of like stories that aren't really, um, like aren't really reported too much on in, in the history books. Uh, and, I mean, also to give you an idea, in the 1990s, then President Bill Clinton 
Uh, he called the border between North and South Korea, quote-unquote, the scariest place on Earth. And keep in mind, that's a man who rode in a plane with Jeffrey Epstein. During this time, the North Korean and South Korean border was essentially marked off by engineer tape, which is like this type of fluorescent tape that's kind of used to mark off land. You've probably seen it here in the U.S. Like people use it as like landmarkers, like between their yards um, to show where one person's property ends and the other one be begins. And that's what they were using uh, on the Korean border at the time. It wasn't uncommon though for North Korean soldiers to adjust the tape just so they would have an excuse to engage American and South Korean forces. Dreznok's life took a complete 360 turn when he was in Korea. He spent his time getting drunk and going to brothels. He had eventually met a woman in the village that was close to his base and wanted to spend a weekend with her, so he requested a weekend leave pass from his sergeant. It was denied, so Dreznok forged the sergeant's signature and went to town anyway. It was discovered by his CO that Dreznok had not reported to his post at the designated time. On August 15, 1962, early that morning, Dreznok was ordered in front of his CO, who had asked Dreznok what had happened the night in question. Dreznok laughed off the accusation and told his commander that he had a pass to go on leave that weekend. His CO called out Dreznok on the forged pass and threatened to court-martial Dreznok. The commander told Dreznok to report to his office later that afternoon for his punishment, but Dreznok would never report. Dreznok was pissed. He hated his childhood, his military life, his marriage. He felt nothing had worked out for him. He was kind of being a little bitch because at this point he was only 22. And, I mean, it, it turns into one of those things which who the fuck wasn't questioning their life at that age? You don't really get a decent grasp on where your life is going until you're like mid to late twenties, even like early thirties. But anyway, on the same day, August 15th, 1962, Dresnok's platoon did a halt on their patrol to sit down and eat lunch. Dresnok's hatred for his life in and out of the army was continuing to stew, but it was at that moment when it came to a breaking point. Dreznok got up and started walking toward a minefield that separated South Korea from the north. His platoon immediately noticed and started yelling for him to come back. Dreznok turned around and fired a single shot in the air. He wasn't intentionally trying to hurt anyone, but was just trying to give him a good scare. He then threw down his rifle and ran into North Korea, where he was met by North Korean soldiers who immediately he surrendered to. Dreznok was detained and taken to a North Korean jail. Dreznok, after being apprehended by North Korean soldiers, was interrogated for several hours and was sandbagged. For those of you who don't know, the term sandbag is like blindfolding someone, but it's just simply throwing a cloth sandbag over someone's head to cover their eyes. So they, you know, they're disoriented and they don't know where they are. After several hours of interrogation in a North Korean stockade, Dreznok hears an American voice while he's blindfolded. He hears someone reaching out to him and saying, hey, Dreznok, it's Abshir. And this is kind of where the story turns a bit complicated. Uh, so during the Korean War, there's about 20 or so American defectors to North Korea. 
they were primarily POWs who voluntarily stayed in North Korea after the war was over. Most of them ended up either going to China or some of them ended up actually just coming back to the United States because they realized life sucked there. But after the Korean War, there were four soldiers in particular who defected and stayed. Now, Dresnok has the most detailed account because he was the one who lived the longest and stayed in North Korea, which is why he's kind of the focal point of this particular episode. But shortly before Dresnok defected, another soldier named Larry Abshear also defected. And then after Dresnok came to North Korea in 1962, fellow U.S. Army soldiers Charles Jenkins and Jerry Parrish also defected to North Korea. Jenkins in 1965 and Parrish in 1963. We're going to touch on their stories because they're just as important to this plot as Dresnok's own, but it should be noted at this point there were a total of four soldiers in North Korea at this time. Abshir and Dresnok were used for propaganda purposes. The North Koreans would set up loudspeakers in the border focused towards the Americans and have Abshir and Dresnok read off propaganda messages urging more Americans to abandon their posts and come to North Korea. Uh, They would say things that they were being treated as gods, that Korean women were flocking to them, and that they were incredibly rich. They also stated that if American soldiers abandoned their posts and brought their weapons and personal equipment, that they would be greatly rewarded. Initially, the defectors didn't think much of leaving their post. They're in this kind of, like, they kind of thought the situation would just blow over. As we mentioned before, U.S. POWs, the U.S. had POW defectors during the Korean War, but eventually they were released either to the U.S. or to, you know, outlying countries. Jenkins himself, who was a sergeant at the Army at the time, he defected under the notion that shortly after him crossing over into North Korea, that he would be taken essentially to the Soviet Union embassy, and then there would be some type of like prisoner exchange with the United States, and he would just end up being released. Within 18 months, though, a total of four soldiers from the U.S. Army were living in Korea. The official explanation was that these soldiers were pretty much outliers statistically. They came from poor, uneducated backgrounds, and for the most part, they didn't know any better. All the defectors did share, you know, a similar background to a degree in that, yeah, they were from lower-income families. Yeah, they didn't have the best educations growing up, and they essentially did join the military as a way out of, you know, their their hometowns. And, I mean, that's, you know, that's why a lot of guys and women joined the army. Uh, They all essentially signed up at a young age. They were kind of disillusioned into what they were getting into, and they were frustrated with their lives in the military because being in the military kind of sucks. Dresnok and the American defectors were given a house in which they all lived in by the North Korean government. They spent their days studying the Korean language, North Korean government policies, and the teachings of Juche which is the North Korean communist ideology. Initially, I thought Juche was a book, kind of like Mein Kampf or the Communist Manifesto, 
But after researching it more, it just looks like a collection of speeches and writings from various North Korean academics. Dreznok during this period began having second thoughts about his defection to North Korea. He was uncomfortable with the idea of not being able to have free thought and speak his opinions when he wanted to, and the other defectors were feeling that way as well. So in 1966, the defectors attempted to escape North Korea. They went to the embassy of the Soviet Union and hoped that because the Russians and the defectors were all white, that the Russians would help them out and help the Americans get home. Their plan was a giant fail. The Soviet diplomat urged the Americans to stay in North Korea, but the defectors declined this, so the Russians ended up calling the North Korean government to come and get the uh, defectors. Uh, the defectors themselves, while being taken away by North Korean authorities, uh, during this, Dreznok gave the Russians the middle finger and yelled, you Russians can take that. There is a rift growing between the defectors. There aren't formal records to prove a lot of this, and we have to go on how Dreznok tells the story versus how Charles Jenkins tells the story, because those are the two most detailed accounts that we have. Now, according to Dreznok, Jenkins, who at the time of his defection was a sergeant in the army, which out of all of the defectors made him the highest ranking person. Dresnok said that after the defection, that Jenkins still carried himself as being a non-commissioned officer who would often, quote-unquote, order the other defectors to do menial tasks while Jenkins just kind of sat at the side and, you know, supervised. Uh, Jenkins said that Dresnok acted as a bully to the other defectors, Dresnok was over six feet tall and close to 200 pounds. He was a pretty big guy compared to all of the other defectors. By Jenkins' account, Dresnok was sort of deputized by the North Koreans to keep the other defectors in their place. This all came to a breaking point one day when, in Dresnok's words, Jenkins asked Dresnok to do something. And this is a very vague story because there's no specific details I could find. Uh, Dresnok declined, and Jenkins ordered Dresnok again to do something. We're not sure exactly what, uh, but Dresnok took offense to this, and he punched Jenkins and said he went down. Jenkins tried getting back up, and Dresnok slapped Jenkins to embarrass him in front of, uh, in front of the other defectors. The whole ordeal sounds like a childish game between four men in their early 20s who essentially just want to have a dick-measuring contest. It didn't seem like there was a point to the fight other than they were just testing each other's toughness and trying to establish a dominant position within the group. Dresnok stated at this point, Abshir, Parrish, and Jenkins kind of formed their own clique. And I think this is motivation for Dresnok to really start spending more time by himself reading Juche. So he could be the one who singles himself out as being the most dedicated to North Korea. From what I've looked into, I believe Dresnok at this point in the story is now conforming to the idea that this is his life now, that he's not going to leave North Korea, and that his chances of returning to the United States and what he saw as being a normal life, that's gone at this point. Um, this is where Dresnok really has to go, quote-unquote, all in, and he realizes that he needs to really show his loyalty to make 
his existence in North Korea, his future and his safety. Uh, he, he just he has to look out for himself at this point. After the escape attempt, Dreznok, in his own words, when asked if they were punished, said that they weren't, but they just needed to be, quote-unquote, educated further. So, after this, the North Korean government assigned military guides or handlers that acted as what Jenkins and Dreznok described as essentially servants to the defectors. The guides would show up and ask the defectors if they needed anything, and from my perspective, it just kind of seems like these, like, quote-unquote guides acted as spies to keep tabs on the defectors ensure, and ensure that they were reading the ideology teachings and staying in line with North Korean law and policy. Dresnok and the other defectors would, from time to time, ask the guides what was going on in the outside world. Sometimes the guides would tell them what was going on, and sometimes they wouldn't. It really would just kind of depend. Um... I guess, on who the guide was and how they're feeling. Um, in 1972, Dresnok and the defectors were officially granted citizenship in North Korea. This allowed them to get access to government ho- housing, uh, I'm sorry, access to government housing, stable food rations, and the ability to attain employment in North Korea. The defectors, they found jobs on the silver screen. In 1978, Future leader of North Korea and scrappy up-and-coming director Kim Jong-il directed a 20-part movie series starring the defectors titled Unsung Heroes or Nameless Heroes, depending on the translation. This movie, to this day, can be found in broken clips on YouTube and it is uh, it's pretty fucking entertaining. The plot of the movie is based around the premise of how the U.S. conspired the Korean War and it's filled with just tons of propaganda against the U.S. Um, Jenkins played a man named Dr. Kelton, who is the man who plotted the entire Korean War. Abshir plays an army officer, a U.S. Army officer, who is charged with leading what appears to be a secret police force. Parrish plays a British army officer who is torn by the U.S. decision to invade North Korea because he believes it parallels the British occupation of his home country, North Ireland. And Dresnok, he only appears briefly in the series, but he plays a U.S. army officer in what looks like a concentration camp. To best describe Dresnok's look in the film, he looked like a Walmart bargain bin Peter Sellers. Throughout their acting careers, the defectors were typecast as stereotypical American villains. In 1983, Larry Abshear died of a heart attack in North Korea. He was only 40 years old. A divide resurfaces and deepens again. This time, it is Dresnok and Jerry Parrish against Charles Jenkins. Dresnok and Parrish had picked up the Korean language, and they were able to speak to each other like fairly fluently. Jenkins barely comprehended Korean, and also one thing to keep in mind, Jenkins did not expect that he would be in North Korea this long. He was hoping he would run across the border, get arrested by North Korean authorities, taken to the Soviet Union embassy, and then there would be some sort of like prison ex- prisoner exchange after his capture. Dresnok and Parrish also disliked Jenkins because Jenkins received larger food rations, 
And this is because when Jenkins defected and ran across the border into North Korea, he also brought with him his U.S. Army-issued M14 rifle. In 1986, Dresnok became a foreign languages professor at a university in Yongyang. North Korea has extensive foreign language educational programs. Some say this is for nefarious reasons, such as North Korea wanting to train spies to send abroad. The defectors went on to get married and have children of their own. North Korea has been accused by multiple nations of kidnapping young women and forcing them to marry North Korean elites. It is speculated that they use foreign women because when they have mixed children, the kids can be groomed into becoming spies for North Korea. North Korean denies us, but being that they are the most closed-off country on the planet, I think it's fair to make these speculations. Dresnok was first married to a Romanian woman, who was supposedly kidnapped while studying abroad in Italy. He met her at a restaurant in Yongyang in the foreigner section. She passed away shortly after having Dresnok's two sons, James Dresnok II and Ted Dresnok. If you want to see a sort of bizarre video of his sons, go to YouTube and search James Dresnok's sons. It's kind of odd watching because his sons both pretty much have blue eyes and either blonde hair, blonde or brown hair, but they speak with these like thick Korean accents that you would think that they're almost like mocking the dialects, but I I recommend giving it a good giving it a watch. Parrish was married to a Lebanese woman, Abshir before his death was married to a kidnapped Philippine woman, and Jenkins as well was married to a kidnapped Japanese woman. Dresnok, after his first wife's death, remarried to a half-Korean, half-Togolese woman. Her father was a diplomat who knocked up a North Korean woman and then returned to Africa. In 1998, Jerry Parrish died in North Korea of liver disease. This left Jenkins and Dresnok as the last two American defectors. Dresnok acknowledged that Jenkins' wife was kidnapped. He stated in an interview that Jenkins' wife wasn't unhappy with her life in North Korea, but rather was unhappy that she was forced to marry Jenkins. And Dresnok insinuated that him and Jenkins' wife started an affair. An affair, sorry. I don't think there's a lot of truth to this, though. I just think Dresnok was just talking shit because he and Jenkins did not like each other at all. In 2002, Kim Jong-il essentially admitted on an international stage that North Korea had, in fact, kidnapped Japanese women and forced them into arranged marriages in North Korea. Being that Jenkins' wife was one of these women, Japan worked out a deal with North Korea that these uh, these abducted women would be granted about a week or so to come back to Japan and, you know, visit their families and whatnot. The, the thing was, though, that North Korea tried leveraging was they said, oh, well, these women, you know, they are mothers now. They have husbands here. How can you, like, separate their family? That's how they tried looking at it. Uh, North Korea's their their public image is really really fucked up, and that's that's how they they tried justifying what what they were doing. Um, the visits were intended for a week, so Jenkins' wife 
returned to Japan and she was revered as a hero. But at the time, Jenkins and their daughters, they had to stay in North Korea. In 2004, Jenkins and his kids were granted permission to visit his wife, their mother, in Indonesia. Jenkins met with an American reporter. and it, Well, before this, on because th- this is where it gets a little bit confusing. One source I found was that they met in Indonesia. Uh, the other was that Jenkins flew straight to Japan. And either way, Jenkins gets to Japan at some point uh, during this time frame. And he finds an American reporter and immediately tells the reporter how shitty it is living in North Korea. Outside of reuniting with his family, Jenkins had other intentions when he got to Japan. Jenkins found the closest U.S. military base in Japan and surrendered to U.S. military personnel for being AWOL all these years. Jenkins was court-martialed by the U.S. Army and served only a 25-day sentence. He was reduced to the rank of private and was officially discharged from the U.S. Army. Out of all of the defector stories that I read, though, and, you know, from all the accounts I could find, I will say this. I, I actually somewhat respect Jenkins the most because he did the first, like, the first opportunity he got, he manned up to what he had done and took the punishment and tried repenting for the wrongs that he committed. Um, when he met his wife in Japan and when they were behind closed doors, he actually proposed getting a divorce from her because he was like... He was like, you were forced to marry me after all these years. And, you know, I, I don't think that you you should have been forced into this. And, uh, you know, he basically told his wife, like, if you don't ever want to see me again, I'm completely fine with that. Because, you know, we were the circumstances we were put under, we were forced to be together. Um, his wife denied it, though. And the two stayed, mar- stayed married until both their deaths. Later in 2004, Jenkins returned to North Carolina to visit his 91-year-old mother, who had not seen him in close to 50 years. Jenkins' biggest complaint about adjusting to life in the modern United States was, quote, you can't smoke anywhere anymore. Jenkins went on to release his memoirs covering his time in North Korea, and he became pretty pretty popular celebrity at the time in Japan, and Charles Jenkins, he ended up passing away in 2017 in Japan. So, post going back now, post-2004, Dresnok was the last remaining American defector in North Korea. He retired as a professor and spent his golden years doing guest lecture tours on campuses throughout North Korea. He spent his days fishing, smoking cigarettes, drinking heavily, and spending time with his family. Dresnok's health declined rapidly toward his older years, and the fact that North Korea is heavily, heavily behind in modern med- medical technology didn't help him at all. He had metal teeth replacements put in at one point. He also had heavily clogged arteries, uh, which ironically is common in the United States amongst overweight people. So, I mean, to an extent, he remained American in some aspects. In August 2017, North Korea released a broadcast to the world. I mentioned this earlier, but it can be found on YouTube. It features James Dresnok's sons speaking about their father. They confirmed that their father had passed away in November of 2016, 
but did not give a specific date. This is kind of the unclimactic ending of the life of James Dresnock. He passed away and was around 74, 75 years old because he was born November. And as I said, they didn't give an exact date as to when their father actually passed away. I'm recording this in December of 2019, and to this day, North Korea still remains the most isolated country on this planet. At some point, I'm going to do probably like a full series on either modern North Korea or the history of North Korea. But this concludes the life of James Joseph Dresnok, the last American North Korean. I just want to go ahead and thank everyone for listening and all the feedback that I've been getting as well. I've been getting various requests for upcoming episodes, and I got a lot of a lot of great stuff that's in the queue. Um, but just just be patient with me. I'm gonna try to start churning out more episodes uh, here in the next like few weeks or so. Uh, please go ahead and share this podcast out with uh, any friends or anyone you think might enjoy the show. Uh, go like our Facebook page. Join the Facebook group. You can uh, find this also on Instagram. We're on Spotify, Breaker, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Anchor, essentially anywhere you can get your podcast. Um, I'm finished just recording around Christmas, so Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to whatever the fuck it is all of you celebrate. Uh, we're about five episodes deep, and uh, I don't I don't know if I'll get one out before the new year, but I'm going to try to uh, get the uh, next one out as soon as I possibly can, so be on the lookout for it. Uh this this entire uh, project is something that you know I'm new at. I've always wanted to do something in uh, broadcast. Um, so I just again I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, have a great new year and just be on the lookout for the uh, next episode coming here soon.